Today's world is being transformed by powerful ideas that pose as the latest social, religious, educational, or moral knowledge, yet are in fact echoes of an ancient lie from Eden that is even now seducing Christianity. Exposing the lie. Well, hi, I'm Bob Anderson, and welcome to Exposing the Lie. The format for our next several programs will be a little bit different from our normal interview programs. Let me explain. Several weeks ago, we spent two sessions with a former evangelist of the United Pentecostal Church. Now, following these programs, we received a phone call from an area UPC pastor who expressed some concern that the UPC's position regarding some of the doctrines discussed in the programs had not been clearly presented nor defended. In effect, we've been challenged to debate in, in a debate-style setting. So we've invited two representatives of the United Pentecostal Church, and we also have two representatives from Historic Christianity to be with us for the next four programs to discuss these doctrinal differences. Now, our first two programs will deal with the nature of God, more specifically whether or not the UPC oneness position is a denial of the Trinity, and is the Trinity biblical? Programs 3 and 4 will deal with salvation, water baptism, the method of baptism, and whether or not baptism plays a role in salvation. At this point, let me introduce a more guest. Seated at my right hand, representing Orthodox Historic Christianity from Shermandale's, Shermansdale, Pennsylvania, is Dr. Robert A. Morey. Uh, Dr. Morey is executive director of the Research and Education Foundation. He's also a pastor. He's the author of some 20 books, including his newest release, Battle of the Gods by Crown Publications out of Massachusetts. And joining Dr. Morey from Niles, Ohio, is Reverend Edgar L. Havage. Ed is the Ohio director of Personal Freedom Outreach, a countercult and Christian apologetics ministry. Seated on my left are representatives of the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, on my immediate left is Reverend J.L. Hall, who's the editor-in-chief of the United Pentecostal Church. And seated on uh, Reverend uh, uh, Hall's left is Reverend David Bernard, who's the associate editor of the same publications. Uh, Reverend Bernard is also the author of ten books, including The Oneness of God. Uh, both men are from Hazelwood, Missouri. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. I'd like to welcome all of you gentlemen to our program today, and thank to be you very here. much for, for coming. <clears throat> Now, to set the format for our viewers, each side will first be given a one-minute opening positional statement regarding the nature of God. In addition, each side will be allotted two three-and-a-half-minute speeches and two one-and-a-half-minute rebuttal periods following their opponent's speeches. In addition, each side will be granted one minute at the end of the program for concluding remarks. Now, because of the limitation of time, each segment will be precisely timed. Should either side exceed the allotted time period, they will be interrupted at that point. Let us now begin with our one-minute opening positional statement concerning the nature of God. Dr. Robert Morey, would you please give us your opening statement? The concept of God taught by the United Pentecostal Church has been condemned as heresy by all Christian churches because it contradicts the Bible, pre-Christian Judaism, the early church, and is itself a product of pagan Greek philosophy, and it was reintroduced into modern times through a supposed revelation given to a Mr. Shep in 1913 in California. Thank you very much, Dr. Morey. Now for the opening one-minute positional statement from the United Pentecostal Church will be Reverend David Bernard. 
At the outset, let me establish that we look to the Bible as the sole authority for doctrine and instruction, salvation, and Christian living. We do not see the creeds of men as authoritative, but we judge them by Scripture. We categorically deny any extra-biblical revelation. We have no authoritative founder, prophet, teacher, or interpreter. We believe the Bible is basically clear and meant to be understood, and our position regarding God can be stated in two positions. First of all, according to Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord is one. And we believe that He is indivisibly one being, no plurality of persons, personalities, minds, wills, bodies, but God is simply and absolutely one. Second, according to Colossians 2.9, in Jesus Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is not just a part of God, He is the fullness of God manifested in the flesh. Thank you very much, Reverend Bernard. Now for our first three-and-a-half-minute uh, statement or speech, uh, we'll turn it again back to the United Pentecostal Church and Reverend Hall. Thank you. Our position is that God is one. That is, that it is monotheism. The same God who was revealed to Israel and to the world as the one God of redeeming power and grace and that God was revealed to us in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 44 and 24, and I'm reading, Thus saith the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. This means that God is the Creator, the one Creator, and he did all creation by himself. The monotheism also is expressed in other verses in Isaiah as well as other parts of the Bible. One of these passages reads this way in Isaiah 44 and 6. It said, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Another passage comes to us from Isaiah the 43rd chapter, and the 10th and the 11th verse. He said, You are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior. In these verses we find the words, Beside me there is no God, I am alone, I did it by myself. There's no God formed before me nor are after me. And that also that he is the one creator and that he is also our savior. In creation, we know God as our father because he is the father of creation. He is also the father of all humanity. And also he became our known as the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the one God has related himself to us in terms of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or in actual experience as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, to effect our redemption. And so Father is a term that designates God, the one true God who revealed himself in his, in his relationship to humanity and creation and also in his relationship to his Son that was born. The Son <laughs> relates to God with us. His name was called Emmanuel, God with us. And so it is God among us, our God who has become a part of uh, 
the experience of human nature. The Holy Spirit is God who dwells in us. And so we could say that God uh, is known as the Father in His creation and as the Father of the Son. He is also known to us in the Son as the Redeemer, as our Lord and Savior. And also He is known to us in the Holy Ghost who indwells in us. And these terms are told to us that there is one God in in uh, 1 Timothy 2 and 5, that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, that's the opening three-and-a-half-minute speech. Now, gentlemen, do you have a you have a, the one-minute uh, and 30-second rebuttal period? Which one do you like to take it or both? Major? I'll start. We see in the scriptures also, uh, Dave and... Um, Mr. Hall, uh, a one God position also. For example, uh, we're not at all shocked by the one that the terms one. We understand and recognize from Deuteronomy chapter four verse thirty-five, and also Deuteronomy chapter four verse thirty-nine. Uh, there is no God beside me. Deuteronomy chapter six four, the Shema, which you quoted. Then we move on into Deuteronomy, where it says in Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two verse thirty-nine, there is no God like me. Uh, rolling on through the New Test or the Old Testament, we have First Samuel two two, Second Samuel seven twenty-two, Second Samuel twenty-two thirty-two. Uh, there is no God. You can't compare me to anything like that. Nehemiah 9, 6, for example, says, I am the, I am the Lord alone. We move into uh, the kings. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 60 says, there's no God beside me. Uh, 2 Kings chapter uh, 19, verse 15, another reference, there's no God beside me. Uh, 1 Chronicles 17, verse 20. So these scriptures we recognize, we realize, we preach them, we believe them. Uh, we realize that there's only one God. Uh, over in, in Psalms, that we roll through the, the book of Psalms. Uh, in, in Psalm chapter um, uh, 18, verse uh, 30. So we re realize from the Old Testament there is only one God, and we realize and we believe that. The, the distinction in our part is when we hear is that we see distinction within the nature of God, and it focuses on the plurality. God is uh, one, and he is revealed as three persons. <clears throat> okay, that's uh, the rebuttal time period. Now, uh, Dr. Moore, you'll have uh, three minutes to give your opening speech. The problem that orthodoxy has with the United Pentecostal Church is not in its position of monotheism. Uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam all are monotheistic faiths, as you can look in any encyclopedia. Our problem with the particular kind of monotheism is found in the United Pentecostal Church, which is a form of modalism, uh, which has been condemned by the Christian Church from the very beginning, is that uh, there is the attempt to say that the name of the Father is Jesus, for which we find absolutely no scripture whatsoever, and the name of the Holy Spirit is Jesus, and the attempt to reduce God to simply the dual nature of Jesus Christ, where he has his human side and his divine side, saying that all the conversations that we have in the scripture where Jesus said, not my will, but your will, where you have clearly within the Godhead distinct intellects, wills and emotions, so the Father is saying something, the Father is sending the Son. To, to, as we look into the Scriptures, we do not find any evidence for the idea that God is one person and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are that one person. We also find that uh, taking the United Pentecostal doctrine at face value, uh, that when we come to the Bible, we don't find what we would expect to find. In other words, as Trinitarians, it does not surprise us to find plural uh, nouns, pronouns, where God says we and us. Uh, it does not surprise us 
that we have passages that speak of a plurality in the Godhead where you have where the Lord has sent me and it's the Lord who's talking. Uh, as we shall see later that in the pre-Christian uh, Judaic literature, such as in the Targums and otherwise, they spoke of a plurality. So the oneness, when we say Shema Yisrael Adonai, and we have the word Echad, it means a unified one, just as in Genesis 2, where the two, the husband and the wife, became one, or in Nehemiah's time, where the people acted as one, uh, where the morning and the evening were of one. So when you speak of monotheism, that there is only one God, that is irrelevant to the discussion of the Trinity and Unitarianism. So we agree that there is one God, but he is eternally existent in three centers of consciousness which can say, I am, three distinct intellects. So you have Jesus and his will as being distinct from the will of the Father. You have the Holy Spirit being sent from the Father and the Son. So that as we look into Scripture, and particularly the literature of the United Pentecostal Church, uh, we cannot find a single place where the Holy Spirit is given the name Jesus or where Jesus is his own Father, so that the name of the Father is Jesus. Thus, orthodoxy, as it looks at the doctrine of the United Pentecostal churches, uh, cannot help but feel that this is a heresy, and it has been labeled as such down through the century, condemned not only by Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, but by all Protestant churches. Okay, that uh, concludes the first three-and-a-half-minute uh, positional speech by Historic Christianity Representative Dr. Robert Morey. We turn now to the one-and-a-half-minute rebuttal period time, and which one of you gentlemen would like to address this? That would be fine. Either one of us can, perhaps both. Um, what we reject, too, is when you take the manifestations of God and redemptive purpose through His Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin Mary in a time frame and push that back into the essence of God and say that somehow God is three entities within one framework, which you call God, which obviously in that sense would be a generic term and not identifying any one individual at all. Our position is that God is one and that he is a personality. There is no division within him. If you have persons with him, then you tend toward a tritheistic view of God. That is that you're dividing God into three beings with one common um, a kind of a substance. And, in, uh, and so we reject that position. We believe that God has revealed himself as Father because he is the Father of Jesus Christ and he is the Father of us in creation. We again believe that the Son was born, that he lived on this earth, that he died, that he was resurrected and exalted up and uh, given power and honor and glory. And we also believe that in the Son was God, God Almighty, not a second person of God who has some kind of existence before as a separate entity of the Father. But he was the Father who came to us as God in flesh. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Reverend Hall. Now for the second uh, speech, the three-and-a-half-minute speech, uh, Reverend uh, Bernard. It's interesting to note that our doctrine we establish from Scripture. The only way that our doctrine is opposed is by using the term three centers of consciousness or three persons, which we do not find that language or that concept in Scripture. In fact, it comes to mind, uh, Van Harvey in a handbook of theological terms published by Macmillan Press says that no uh, major Christian theologian has affirmed that God is three centers of consciousness recognizing that would be really a belief in three gods. And so we must, first of all, 
realize that when the Bible says that God is one, it means simply that God is one. No other qualification, no addition to say yes, but really he has three separate wills or three separate centers of consciousness. And that uh, is the historic position of the Old Testament believers, the Jews, and also I would maintain that is the historic position of the uh, original Christian church as found in the New Testament. Because many places in the New Testament is stated that God is one. And the Hebrew word echad, which uh, is proposed here to mean simply a union as of a man and woman being one, uh, that cannot be substantiated as that was the meaning in reference to God. Because there are many places throughout the Old Testament where echad is used distinctly for one individual being, such as the list of the kings that are mentioned in Joshua. And so that cannot be a conclusive argument. When you actually look at uh, the use of echad in relation to God, it's to distinguish him from all other gods, as he is the one and only true God. And so the context will let us know the meaning of that word. And if you're going to speak of pluralities in the Godhead, you'll have to give us specific scriptural references, and let's discuss them. Uh, you, we can't just go in general terms. Now, so we are establishing that God is one. The next thing we want to establish is that Jesus is the one God incarnate. Now, we do not believe that the omnipresent spirit of God was confined or that God somehow lost his omnipresence in the incarnation. We recognize that God was before Jesus Christ was born. God is omnipresent, omnipotent during the time of Christ's earthly ministry. And so we are not trying to reduce God to a human being, but we're saying that in Jesus Christ, God united himself with flesh. And when the Bible says God, it does not mean just one of three persons of God. It means simply God. If we were to accept a Trinitarian model, we would have to say when the Bible says that Jesus was God with us, Matthew 1.23, that that is the fullness of God. How are you define him? If you define him as three persons, then the scripture would say that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19. Uh, John 20.28, 20, when uh, Thomas confessed that Jesus is my Lord and my God. Isaiah 9.6, the child and the son that was born was not merely a human child and son, but he was also called the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And John 14, 9 through 11, Jesus said, When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You have not merely seen the flesh, but you have actually seen God himself in manifestation. Titus 2, 13 speaks of Jesus as our God and Savior. In the context of the Old Testament and the New Testament, God is simply God. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead incarnate. All right. Historic Orthodox Christianity, one and a half minute rebuttal time. Okay, again, as I, as I hear you talk, okay, the idea of this tritheistic, we are not tritheistic. I didn't bring up outside literature. We have appealed and, and have, have substantiated our arguments from uh, the Scripture. The, uh, the Scriptures that, uh, Dave, that you, you brought up, I agree with, and I, 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 I 100% I agree with these Scriptures. However, we see this distinction going on. You know, how, how do you uh, see uh, uh, Jesus, uh, for example, conversing with his Father? Now, I've read a number of, uh, of uh, books by the uh, United Pentecostal Church, and we have, uh, we have, for example, the deity speaking to the humanity. Where do we get any justification? Where is there any scriptural justification for talking about a dual nature? You say, as a Trinitarian, okay, I see my position predicted in the scriptures. In other words, as a Trinitarian, I would see and it would predict 
within the scriptures that there would be a subject-object relationship. The oneness position has to rationalize that. The oneness position has to come up and has to justify from the scriptures a dual nature. And that's what I'm pressing you for at this point. Where do we get any justification for this dual nature in the scriptures? As a, as a Trinitarian, I see okay, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all talking. There's, there's, there's a plurality which would indicate distinction and separation. Okay, we now have a three-and-a-half-minute uh, uh, second speech from the historic Christian physician. It's interesting to note that in the Hebrew language that there is a word for one, which would mean a solidary one. That is not the word that is used in reference to God. The word that is used is the word that means compound unity. Whether we're talking about when they came out of uh, Cana, they brought one grape, and they actually meant a cluster or a husband and wife becoming one, or we rise up as one in nation. We also find the plurality of the pronouns when God is speaking. Who will go for us? Let us make man in our image and in our likeness. The fact that Plural names are used for God, such as Elohim. Uh, the Jews in the pre-Christian area and the Targums uh, noticed that you'd have Lord God Almighty. And they talked about the, uh, the mystery of the fact that within the Godhead there seemed to be a plurality. Uh, the fact that uh, you had in the New Testament the same teaching that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each God in the sense of their nature. Now, when we look into the scriptures to see where Jesus is the name of the Father, we don't find a single text where we look in the scriptures to find where the name of the Holy Spirit is Jesus. Again, we do not find a single text. What we do find is that there is but one God, and as Christians, we agree that there is but one God, but this one God uh, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the New Testament. So that as we turn to the scriptures... We do not find anything to indicate whatsoever that the oneness doctrine of the United Pentecostal Church is there. All the vocabulary, the syntax, the grammar of the Greek and the Hebrew is against it. When we turn to early church history, we find it is not there. Uh, when the discussion and controversies over the nature of God began to boil up, it was very clear that those who championed somewhat of a doctrine close to what uh, the United Pentecostal Church teaches, Praxis and Enosis and other people, uh, that they had a, a, a view of God that arose out of Greek philosophy, where you had the classic struggle between the one or the many, and you had the polytheists who believed in the many, and you those who emphasized the oneness. Down throughout church history, the same thing can be said again and again whenever this issue has arisen, and it was in 1913 that your movement had its beginning, and talking with pastors and reading the literature, uh, it did start with the supposed revelation, uh, even though some would like to say it began with the apostles. Uh, others who were more of a historical ilk admit where it began. Uh, the Assemblies of God have gone on official record as where it began. We know the names of the individuals. We know the where and the when. So we're dealing with a movement which arose in this century, uh, which attempted to say that the one name used in Matthew 28, 19 is the name Jesus, and that this is the key to unlocking the Bible. Some of your authors have said, as a matter of fact, that it is because of this key that they can understand the Trinity is not true. Otherwise, just reading the Bible leads you to the Trinity. All right, for your last 
one and a half minute to rebuttal. We have, uh, which one of you gentlemen would like to? First of all, I already stated we categorically reject extra biblical revelation. If you'll do some more historical research, you'll find the man whose name that you gave was not in any way a founder of our movement. And furthermore, the revelation he spoke of was an understanding of the scripture. And that's all we or many Trinitarians would use the same word revelation to mean that God has shown them what the scripture is saying. And that, of course, is the classic Christian doctrine of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now, when we speak of Jesus conversing with the Father, it's understandable that Jesus was speaking as an authentic human being. Now, I did not use the term dual nature. You asked me about that. If you mean that Jesus was both God and man at the same time, I will agree. I think that is the, uh, what you would probably espouse the same way. I don't know what you mean by dual natures. But the prayers of Jesus is not a conversation between three members of the, the Godhead. You never find, for example, the Father addressing the Holy Ghost or vice versa, but it's always the in the context of a real human life. He prayed just as we prayed. He submitted His will. It wasn't a divine will that was submitted to another divine will. If so, you would have this second person of the Godhead not truly being God, not having His own will or not being able to exercise His own will, but rather you must understand that it was as a human being that He submitted His will to God. Okay, now we have uh, one minute allotted for a closing statement. Uh, Reverend Hall, would you care to take that? Yeah, I think we can restate our position that we do believe in the Father, Son, the Holy Ghost. We believe in an actual son who was born a Virgin Mary in a time frame. He was born, we know when he was born. He was born in Bethlehem. He was born uh, uh, into the human family. He grew up, he lived uh, among people. Uh, he experienced everything that we know as a human being. That is, he was weary, he was hungry, he was sleepy. Uh, he understood all of that. The Bible said he was tempted in all points like as up. He died and he rose again. And, uh, and that's, that's the Son. But in that Son was the eternal God. And that was the same God who spoke the world into existence. In fact, it's attributed to Jesus Christ that he was in the world and the world was made by him. Thank you very much, Reverend Hall. And for our final one-minute closing speech, which one of you gentlemen will take, take that? We still fail to hear one single verse which says that the name of the Father is Jesus, the name of the Holy Spirit is Jesus. We fail to find any biblical text except the ones quoted in favor of monotheism, which we do not disagree with. Thus, we fail to find that historically, biblically, philosophically, that the oneness doctrine of the United Pentecostals has established itself and the condemnation of heresy given by all branches of the Christian church stands today as it always has. Well, thank you very much, uh, both sides. It's uh, getting to be a very interesting uh, debate at this point. We want you to know that we're, uh, we're happy that you've come today to openly discuss these positions. Uh, and I think it's for the benefit of our listening audience that, uh, that we be aware uh, of, these, of the controversial nature. Now, we're going to be continuing these programs. We'll have three more programs. Our next show, program number two, will continue this topic, The Nature of God. And then programs three and four will deal with salvation, water baptism, and whether or not water baptism actually plays a role in salvation. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for coming today. Uh, we expect you to both be here on our next program, and at that time we'll continue with the, uh, the topic of the nature of God. Until the next time, and uh, 
would hope that you'll be able to tune in for that next uh, program. It's going to be very interesting, I can assure you. I'm Bob Anderson speaking for our guest today, reminding that God loves you and we do too. We'll see you again same time, same place next week. Bye-bye till then. Now, last week in Program 1, we aired the first of two shows dealing with the nature of God, and more specifically, whether or not the UPC oneness position, which is a denial of the Trinity, is biblical. Today, we'll continue with that oneness position versus the Trinity, and then Programs 3 and 4 will deal with the subject of water baptism, salvation, the method of baptism, and whether or not baptism actually plays a role in salvation. Gentlemen, I'd once again like to welcome all of you to our second program in this series. Last week, we began with uh, with uh, quite a discussion uh, on the oneness position versus the Trinity. Today we're going to continue with that same format. Hopefully we'll be able to resolve some of these questions and so forth. Uh, last week uh, we had started with Dr. Morey. Today we'll uh, allow one of you gentlemen to, uh, to begin your one-minute uh, opening statement. Well, I think, first of all, it's important to establish that we look only to the Bible as our source of doctrine. And so we ask to be judged uh, on the basis of Scripture. We consider ourselves to be Orthodox Christians on the basis of the New Testament teaching. And uh, any other creed or historic statement by some figure is not uh, a valid grounds for judging Orthodoxy. Now, in John 17, 3, uh, the Bible says that this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So our fundamental position is we believe there is one God, the only true God. We must worship Him. And we furthermore believe that this one God sent Jesus Christ, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5 says. We recognize that Jesus is the one God incarnate, but as to His humanity, He is a sacrifice for our sins. And we must believe in His deity and in His humanity. Thank you very much, Reverend Bernard. Now for the one-minute opening statement from Historic Orthodox Christianity. Yes, we also believe in the one true God also. Uh, the, our position is that the Trinity is totally biblical. As a ma matter of fact, the, the Bible predicts the Trinitarian position. We believe in the one God concept, and uh, we, uh, we, we feel that the, uh, the position of the United Pentecostal Church is scripturally bankrupt when it comes to the dual nature or this idea uh, presented that uh, somehow Jesus uh, from his uh, from this one solitary position speaks as a father and speaks as a son and uh, we find that that is uh, totally uh, non-scriptural and uh, we're pushing and pressing you for the scriptural justification for this conversation among two manifestations. Okay, so there we definitely have two uh, opposing positions regarding the nature of God, the oneness position of the United Pentecostal Church, the Trinity of Historic Christianity. For our first speech in today's second program on the nature of God, Dr. Robert Morey, your first opening three-and-a-half-minute speech. Well, Trinitarians derive their doctrines from the Bible and only the Bible, uh, that Christians have expressed their faith in various confessions. These confessions are not viewed as inspired or infallible, but simply as what they are, confessions of faith. When we turn to the Bible, we find that God is personal as opposed to impersonal. God is not an it, but by that we mean he has intellect, will, and emotion. And all of the arguments and scriptures which prove that God is personal are the exact same arguments that prove that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each distinct persons as well. If these arguments are disallowed by the United Pentecostal Church, we submit they have no arguments left to prove that God is personal. 
Then when we turn to the scriptures themselves, we find what we would expect to find, giving the doctrine of the Trinity, that plural nouns, pronouns, verbs, adverbs, and adjectives are used in the Hebrew Bible for God, the word God itself, Elohim, being plural, the us and the our passages given in Genesis 1, 26, 3, 22, Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 8. For example, let us make man in our image. Man is not made in the image of angels, but only of God. Or again, the fact that the Son of God preexisted his incarnation. We're told in Proverbs 30 and verse 4, what is the name of he who ascended on high, who gathered the winds, and what is the name of his Son? Or again in Hebrews 1, 6, 8 through 13, in chapter 10, 5 through 7, when the Son of God was entering into this world, God said, let the angels of God worship him. In terms of the Greek grammar, it is clear the Son of God existed before he entered into this world. I existed before I entered into this studio, and the Son of God existed before he entered into the world. Also, we find that Jesus sat down next to the right hand of the Father in Mark 16, 19, Acts 2, 33, Romans 8, 38, Ephesians 1, 28, uh, 20. It would be very hard for me to sit down next to myself. Uh, the same thing if Jesus uh, is supposedly the name of the Father and Jesus is the Father, then in John 8, 17, 18, Jesus said, I am not alone, but there are two witnesses to what I have to say. The Father is one witness, and I am one witness. If the Father is not a separate person, then Christ's witness is not valid. We also find that Jesus in John 15, verse 42, said both referring to the Father and Him both doing something. Or in John 14, 16, the word another, or the word we in John 14, 23. Matter of fact, Jesus said He was not alone. John 8, 16, verse 29, chapter 16, verse 32. He stated in John 6, 46, no one has seen the Father. The same thing the Apostle John said in John 1, 18. They have seen the Son, but not the Father. Two natures cannot talk to each other. People talk. Personalities talk. Thus, the Trinity is based on these and many other biblical arguments. Thank you very much, Dr. Morey. Now, the United Pentecostal Church will have a one-and-a-half-minute rebuttal period. It's interesting that all the examples used show a distinction in the Godhead or distinguishing between God and the man Christ Jesus. And what we must understand that Jesus spoke from an authentic real human life. It was not just a charade. But if we try to take these examples that you've given to show two persons in the Godhead, we quickly run into the problem of subordination, that this second person is not truly God, because he says, my father is greater than I, John 14, 28. That is a statement from a real human life, not a statement of relationships between two divine people, to use your term, or personalities, to use your term. Jesus said in John 5.30, I can of my own self do nothing. Mark 13.32, the Son does not know the time of the second coming. The point is, these are speaking as to his humanity, as a real living human being. The Son was born, according to Luke 1.35. He was called the Son of God because the Holy Ghost caused the conception to take place. Galatians 4.4 says the Son was made of a woman, made under the law. Hebrews 1.5, the Son was begotten on a certain day. Romans 5.10, the Son died. These refer to the humanity, a man who was born and died, but that man at the same time was God incarnate, God dwelling in him. 
talking about Jesus at the right hand of God, if we understand that as referring to two uh, bodies, we have tritheism, we have three separate and distinct gods. That refers to the exaltation of the man. Okay, time is up. Now for your first three and a half minute speech. Yes, I think I would like to continue this discussion about an eternal son, or the Bible does not speak of an eternal son. The Bible speaks of a son who was born in Bethlehem, born of the Virgin Mary. The Bible speaks of a son who was submissive to his father. The Bible speaks of a son who lived as an authentic human being. The Father speaks of a son who, uh, the Bible speaks of a son who died, who was buried, who was raised again and exalted up and given glory and honor and power. The concept of a trinity, we believe that there is one person. We agree with that. God is a person. And we do not believe, however, that he has diffused his person into three other entities or being, that he still retains that individuality. He is one person, and uh, if, if he is personal in that sense. And then, uh, if, there is, if there would be such a thing as an eternal son, that would have to be shown in the scriptures. For example, one of the verses used by Trinitarian theologians to, to establish that the son is eternal is in John 1 and 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But that is, does not establish an eternal Son. It talks about a Word, and a Word is a Logos, which uh, means thought, or concept, or idea. And so we say that certainly God's thought and plan and idea was established from the foundation of the world. He knew in his foreknowledge what would happen, as the Scriptures have said, and, and foreknowledge of Jesus Christ. We do believe that Jesus Christ existed before his coming into this world. That is, he existed as God, but not as a human being, nor as a son of God. In order to have a son of God, you also had to have a time of his birth be before Mary and before Bethlehem. That means that you had to come up with some theory, and that theory, of course, came through the historical process of an eternal generation. Eternal generation, however, is nonsensical. You cannot generate and be eternal at the same time. But if he is eternal, somewhere he has to have that kind of a relationship to a father, or else he is not a son. Of course, some suppose that perhaps he should not be called a son at all, but we believe that he is the son of God because he was born in this earth and he lived on this earth and that God was in him. The Bible said God was manifest in the flesh. That was an authentic human relationship. You ask us, what about the relationship of Jesus talking about his father and to his father and praying to his father? That's what we would expect a human, actual human experience on this earth uh, to consist of. We would expect for him to say, my father is my God. We would expect for him to pray. We would expect him to say, my father is greater than I. Because as in his humanity, that's exactly how he would speak. As God, however, he could forgive sins. And he did that on occasion here in this earth. Thank you very much. For the one and a half minute rebuttal period, gentlemen, who would like to take that? Again, I'd like to stay that, uh, state when we look at the scriptures closely, you will find in Proverbs 30 and verse 4 that the Son of God is revert to, referred to, and this is not a prophecy. 
It is not a prophetic section. You'll also find references to the Son of God in Psalm 2 and other places. And in the intertestamental period of Jewish writings, the rabbinic writings, they fully believed that the Messiah was to be divine in his nature, but the Messiah himself was not defined as being all of God that there is. There was to be a plurality. Again, in Hebrews 1, 6, verses 8 through 13, and in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7, again, the pre-existence of the Son, when he brought the Son into the world. When Jesus, as the Son, came into the world, he said, a body thou hast prepared for me. We do not say in the Trinity, uh, eternal generation. I agree with you. I don't accept origin. He was a heretic. But we say Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, known as the Word or any other thing. He alone is the second person and is part of the Godhead. All right. We now have a three and a half minute period. Reverend Havage. Okay. Uh, David, you asked uh, last week uh, concerning where I got this idea about this dual nature. And uh, as we see it as Trinitarians, uh, very clearly we see that the plurality indicates a distinction. In Gordon McGee's book called um, Is Jesus in the Godhead or Is is the Godhead in Jesus, he makes this this statement here. And he says, uh, quote, This explains uh, the Jesus of the Bible fully and comprehensively. All we have to do when we read the Bible is to keep in this, uh, keep this simply, keep this simple thought: Is Jesus acting as a man, or is he acting as God? Is Jesus uh, speaking as a man, or is he speaking as God? Because he was both God and man. Um, in him, deity and humanity were fused, but not conf- not confused. He could speak. Uh, from two separate standpoints. He could talk as Almighty God and he he could talk as a human, unquote. Okay, so McGee's position right here is a Jesus within Jesus. He's got these two two distinct um, entities or um, manifestations speaking, one manifestation speaking to another manifestation. As a Trinitarian, I see one individual speaking to another individual, uh, the Father responding back to the Son, the Son responding to the Father. And uh, this is what you would expect Okay, from the scriptural standpoint, this, the scripture supports this. Uh, there is no qualifying uh, language at all in the Bible to say that uh, Jesus steps from one point. McGee goes on and said that this is the key. There's a, another author, uh, Kenneth uh, Reeves, in his book, uh, makes this stem. He says, quote, uh, to the undiscerning, it seems logical to say that the Son and the Father must be two different persons, for whoever heard of his uh, father whoever heard of the son and his father being one. And this is true, but God is not a person in the same category that uh, people are persons, unquote. So here we have another example, okay, where, where, where Reeves is saying that it's a logical conclusion unless you have discernment. So a person picking up the scripture, reading through it, and he sees the son talking to the father. He sees the father talking to the son. The conclusion that he comes to is that there is two individuals. You have to have a key, okay, as McGee says. You have to have uh, another kind of uh, input to get the idea that you've got two are two natures speaking out of the same body because the scriptures certainly uh, doesn't support it. You have, uh, for example, uh, Jesus in uh, John chapter 8, verse uh, 16, John chapter 8, verse 29, and John chapter 16, verse 32, where he says, I am not alone. There's somebody with me. Uh, if, if I was to show up here and I would say, uh, Dave, I'm coming into the studio, but I'm not alone, you would expect somebody else. Now, if I got in here and I said, well, you know, I'm a teacher and I'm a pastor and I'm an evangelist, you know, and we're all all coming together, 
we don't talk like this, you know. As an individual, I don't refer to those entities in myself as another person, as another entity. But this is exactly what we see in the Trinity, okay, in the Godhead, as persons talking to each other as if they are, are individuals, and the Bible supports this. The, and, and again, I'm pressing you. Where is the scriptural justification? Where is the idea, okay, or the, where do we get this idea, okay, that... These two, in, that, that the Father and the Son, one entity, okay, stepping or, or, or stepping from uh, humanity to divinity and talking to each other. Okay. One minute and 30 second rebuttal period. Would you like to address that question? One, eight, I don't know which one should. I'll, I wasn't taking notes. On I'll, I'll uh, give an answer to some of these things. First of all, this concept of dual nature. I think it's interesting. If I understand correctly, you two gentlemen are... are actually denying, and correct me if I'm wrong, two elements of so-called historic Christianity for the creeds. First of all, eternal generation is part of the Nicene Creed, which says the Son is not mutable or changeable, and it's in subsequent creeds. So uh, it looks like that you're approaching our position on that point. Also, the dual, na dual nature, um, the councils have also said that dual nature, of course, in a Trinitarian sense, they say this eternal Son uh, who is God and the humanity. So they see two natures in Christ. So if you're saying that's wrong, then you are denying historic Christianity according to the creeds. But I say that the dual nature, if you want to speak about that, is Jesus said, for example, I thirst. That is a human expression. God is not thirsty. At the same time, he said, thy sins be forgiven thee. Only God can forgive sins. So we're saying that Jesus can speak as God in virtue of his deity. At the same time, we can say that Jesus can speak in virtue of his human experience. That's all we're saying. And to say that when he says, my father is greater than I and so on is that, is to say that that's a second person of the Godhead talking, is to say that your second person is subordinate to the first and not truly God. All right, you now have a three-and-a-half-minute uh, speech. Okay. I'm sorry, I should have... Well, let me continue on that with this uh, presentation. And when we're talking about Jesus speaking as a real man, and we're talking about Jesus as God, I think even in the Trinitarian sense, they would say that. The question is, is all of the Godhead revealed in Jesus, is he God manifested in the flesh, as 1 Timothy 3.16, Titus 2.13, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and so on, or is he just one of the three persons of the Godhead manifest in the flesh. We say he is God manifest in the flesh. But we both have to agree that he spoke from his human existence, not only from his divine existence. For example, when he said, I am not alone, but the Father is with me. To the Jews that he was looking at at that time, they saw him as a man only. That's all they believed he was. So he had to explain to them, I look like a man, I am a man, you see me as a man, but I am not a man only. The Father is with me. The Father is in me. The Father dwells in me. And it's he who is speaking. It's he that's doing the works. In other words, it's not the humanity alone, but the Father, the Spirit of the Father, not somewhere else, but dwelling in me. And so he could say in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? To the example of the right hand of God. Some people picture a Father over here and Jesus sitting over here, two people in heaven. But that's clearly erroneous because God is an omnipresent spirit. God is a spirit. You can't see God. John 4, 24. If Jesus was sitting next to God, is he sitting next to the Trinity? If God is indeed the Trinity. I would say that we cannot see God. 
uh, only as he reveals himself or manifests himself in some way. And that's exactly who Jesus was, the manifestation of God. And so if we were to go to heaven and say, just hypothetically say, Jesus, I'm glad to see you, but where is the Father? He would say the same thing that he told Philip in John 14. How can you ask to see the Father? To see me is to see the Father in the only way that humans can actually see the Father. If you can't believe the words, look at the works that I'll do. And you see that no mere man is doing these things, but it's the Father who dwells within me that is doing the work. I think this question will really focus the differences between the two of us, although you have confirmed most of what we've said, and we're very close on many points, it seems. Here's the key. When we get to heaven, will we see three divine persons on three thrones or one divine person on one throne? If we will see three on three thrones, that is tritheism, the belief in three gods, no matter how you may try to deny that. But the Bible says in Revelation 4, 2, there's one throne and one on the throne. Revelation 4, 8 with Revelation 1, 8, 7, and 8 identifies that one as Jesus Christ. In him we see Father. He is the Son of God who was born. It's his spirit we receive when we receive the Holy Spirit. So if you will see one in heaven, who is that one? It's the visible image of the invisible God, according to Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, and so on. You will see Jesus Christ. And if you will agree with us that you will see one divine being in heaven, that you will see Jesus Christ, then that is our position. All right. Rebuttal time. Well, as Orthodox Christians, of course, we believe that Jesus Christ is both divine and human, but we do not believe that the two natures can talk to each other or that Jesus was some kind of schizophrenic who would say, how are you, Father? Fine. And how are you today? Lord, I love you. Yes, and I love you too. We don't find anywhere in Scripture that kind of concept. What we find are actual conversations where Jesus would speak in the plural, we are one in terms of our nature. Thus we find throughout Scripture evidences that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not all melted together into one person, but are three distinct personalities which make up the one true God. Thus we find the plural nouns. Thus we find Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Thus in John 8, Jesus is saying, I am not alone, but there must be two or three witnesses. I am a witness and my Father is a witness. An individual cannot say, I and myself are two witnesses. You cannot be both of them or three of them. When we get to heaven, of course, we don't see the Father. He is invisible. Neither do we see the Holy Spirit. He is invisible. But the Shekinah glory of God being manifested on the throne and Jesus at the right hand of that brilliance or light or whatever it is, is exactly what is described in the scriptures. So we have one God, eternal in three persons. All right, you gentlemen can continue with your next three and a half minute speech. When we come to the scriptures, of course, we uh, have to step back and ask ourselves, how has God revealed himself? He's revealed himself as personal. You agree with this on that point? Uh, We also find that uh, in scripture that if we tried to say Peter, James, and John were actually one person, all of the arguments that would be given to prove that are the same arguments you use to prove that the Father, the Son are And the Holy Spirit are one person's. And it is equally erroneous either way. Peter, James, and John are separate personalities. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are separate personalities. Okay. We have a now one-and-a-half-minute rebuttal period. Is this... I find it it very interesting to hear the explanation of the Trinity compared to people, uh, persons... And, of course, we could expect that because the Cappadocian fathers did that at the Council of Nicaea in 381. They said God was a generic kind of 
uh, being, but within that generic are sharing that, were three particulars. And he compared it to humanity as a whole, and then uh, three men in particular. That is, a, to us, a very tritheistic view of God. It says to us that there is one classification that's called God, but there may be many. And, of course, you say three because perhaps it's only revealed uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost in the Scriptures. But there could be perhaps 50 or 60 on the same concept. Okay. A closing statement, gentlemen? You want to do it? or? <laughs> well, in conclusion, then, we can see it very sharply defined. If God is a trinity like Peter, James, and John are three different people, then in any meaningful sense of the word, we have three gods. Though you may deny it, though you may not like to use that term, I fail to see in any sense that you have one God. Now, if you say just in the sense of union, as three people can be one, Jesus himself transcended that concept when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We cannot say if you've seen Peter, you've seen James, or you've seen John. We're talking about identity. Jesus is the one God incarnate. We will see him and him alone in heaven. And he is at the right hand of God in the sense he is exalted, just as I would say my right hand man or something like that. Thy right hand is glorious in power, uh, Exodus 15, 6. So we expect to see Jesus, not just as a man, but all the fullness of the Godhead incarnate revealed. Gentlemen, your closing statement. We also believe that Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead incarnate. We have no dispute with that. And uh, our, our, our position, uh, again, is, is that the, that the, the Scripture uh, reveals this subject-object relationship. All right? And uh, I want to wrap you up. Okay, that's all the time we have for this uh, program, unfortunately. But uh, we will continue with programs three and four. Uh, we'll be back next week at the same time and same place. Where we'll get into the discussion of, of salvation and water baptism. Until then, Bob Anderson, talk to you again next week. Bye-bye for today. Last week and in the prior week, we spent two programs dealing with the nature of God. More specifically, whether or not the UPC oneness position, a denial of the Trinity, is biblical. And today we'll continue uh, with uh, a third and fourth program on salvation and water baptism, the method of baptism, and whether or not baptism plays a role in salvation. So first of all, we'd just like to uh, welcome all you gentlemen back once again. Uh, gentlemen, again, welcome to our program. Today we're going to be talking about the subject of salvation and water baptism and what role that the water, baptism, uh, water baptism plays in salvation. And uh, so to start us off this time with an opening one-minute uh, introduction on what we as historic Orthodox Christians believe is Dr. Robert Morey. Dr. Morey? Yes, the doctrine of salvation that is taught by the United Christian Church has been condemned as heresy by evangelical fundamental and Pentecostal churches because it denies that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, because it says that there must be obedience, water, baptism by immersion in the name of Jesus, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and speaking in tongues in order to be saved. These things are said to be essential to salvation. In so doing, they've made salvation dependent upon the works of man instead of the grace of God. Thank you very much, Dr. Morey. Now for your opening one-minute uh, positional speech. Well, we believe that we must go to the Bible and the Bible alone to find out uh, how a person can be saved. And the Bible clearly says that we're saved by grace through faith. Uh, faith is an active response to the Word of God. It does include obedience. Hebrews 5, 9 tells us that we're saved by obedience. 
And we must understand that faith and obedience are inseparables. As theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, that only he who is obedient believes. It's in the act of obedience that we express our faith. In Acts 2.38, Jesus, uh, the apostle Peter, gave the example or the instructions in the end of the first sermon on the birthday of the New Testament church. When people asked what they needed to do to be saved, he said, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That is the proper response to the gospel. And we believe that that is still the answer that the church should give to the world today. All right, thank you very much. Now for the opening three-and-a-half-minute speech. Yes. We believe that no person who is interested in obeying God can ignore water baptism in the Scriptures. We find it first, of course, in John the Baptist, who came baptizing unto repentance for the remission of sins. And people came from the area and region to be baptized, and they confessed their sins. We also find that Jesus' Jesus's disciples did uh, baptize, or they baptized, at least there's evidence of it, in John 3 and 4. And then we come to the Great Commission where Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That was a command uh, from Jesus Christ. No one can ignore that or discredit it or fight against it without fighting against the one who said, All power in heaven and earth is given unto me. Furthermore, we find that he linked it with salvation in Mark the 16th chapter and the 16th verse. For he said in the 15th verse that we are to go and to preach to all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that is baptized, or he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And again, in uh, Acts 2.38, as already been quoted here, Peter said, whenever they asked him, what shall we do? They were interested in what shall we do to be saved? He said, first of all, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and then continued it. But we also find that it did not stop on the day of Pentecost, for we find that they were baptized that day, 3,000. And then in the 8th chapter of Acts, we find that Philip, when Philip went to the, uh, the cities of Samaria to preach Jesus Christ, when they heard and they believed Philip concerning Jesus Christ, they were baptized. In John, or in Acts, the 10th chapter, we find that Peter is at the household of Cornelius. He preached to them, and as he is preaching, they received the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And then he said to them, in spite of this tremendous experience they have of God working in their lives in such a tremendous way, he said, can any man forbid water, seeing that these have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And then he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We say certainly we're saved by faith through grace. It is not our works. A man could be baptized a thousand times and still be lost. We do not say that it's baptismal regeneration. We say that it is baptized because we're sinners and we need remission of those sins. Peter said it on the day of Pentecost. Uh, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Apparently linking our baptism with the matter of our sinfulness. So we say that it is not an option, that it is a command, and as Christians and as people, we need to obey the command of God and not to ignore it. All right, the uh, Christian position, rebuttal, one and a half minutes. Okay, in that 
in the opening state or in the uh, in the Apostles' Creed by Hanby, it says the water baptism is an essential part of New Testament salvation. Unquote. And uh, we would disagree with that because uh, as we look at the New Testament, we see that sal- that baptism followed salvation. We see, uh, for example, uh, uh, salvation uh, coming as a point of believing. He that believes, or in other words, on the Greek, uh, pisteo, who puts their trust or their confidence in Jesus. It means to cling to, to rely upon, and trust in. It's a belief that alters the actions of one's life. As the believer is cleansed and uh, infilled by the Holy Spirit, um, a person passes from death unto life. At that point, the believer then submits to to water baptism. This is the uh, progression that uh, Cornelius followed. Cornelius uh, believed, and he received the the filling of the Holy Spirit and uh, was saved, and then, out of obedience to his salvation and out of obedience to Christ, was baptized. So we see that baptism does not remit sin. Baptism is an expression or a statement that sins have been remitted in the believer's life. Okay, you still had 30 seconds, but uh, we can continue on. Uh, Dr. Mori, if you'd like to... uh... All right, it's stated in the literature that speaking in tongues is essential to salvation, which means that if I do not speak in tongues, and there are millions of professing Christians do not speak in tongues, who do not profess that they have, quote, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or they have not been baptized by immersion, or baptized in the name of Jesus Christ as opposed to the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, these people are not saved, they're not converted, they're not on their way to heaven. Where in Scripture we would ever find that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential to salvation? John 3.16 does not say, For whosoever uh, is baptized, receives the Spirit, speaks in tongues, these are the things uh, that would be revealed as being essential to salvation. When we look at salvation passages, take for example the Acts 2, we notice that in the Greek grammar, Uh, that the word repent is in the plural, which says you all should repent. Then he switches in terms of a singular saying, and he, the individual who has repented, should be baptized. And then when he says that your sins will be remitted or forgiven, it's back to the plural. So in terms of grammar, you have all of you should repent, and as you repent, your sins will be forgiven or remitted. Thus, you do not find in the New Testament that baptism by water, by immersion, in the name of Jesus only, is essential to salvation. You've condemned most of uh, Christianity and all Christians for uh, nearly 2,000 years. Neither do we find that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is essential to salvation, nor the evidence that there is speaking in tongues. Thus, when we turn to Scripture, we find that salvation is due to the grace of God alone. You've said you believe that salvation is by grace, but you don't put the word alone. Obedience is a virtue that comes bringing merit. Faith is an empty hand. In the Greek, there's a word for obedience, and there's a word for faith. Faith means forsaking all, I trust him, I take him. Thus, faith lays hold of Christ who has done all that is necessary for our salvation. Thus, if we rely upon our obedience in baptism, uh, receiving the Spirit, or whatever it is, this is defective. This is against Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And, of course, the classic passage is Acts 10, where Cornelius was converted and saved and filled without baptism. Thus, you find the idea that you must be baptized by immersion only in the name of Jesus, is not consistent with Acts chapter 10. Instead, we preach that the gospel is of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from such works 
as baptism, speaking in tongues, things of this nature. Thank you very much, Dr. Mori, for a minute and a half of rebuttal time. United Pentecostal Church. We would like to respond to someone saying that the Holy Ghost is not necessary for salvation. It's built upon an erroneous idea that there is a difference being, between being filled with the Spirit and being baptized with the Spirit. But those terms are used interchangeably along with a number of other terms in the New Testament. When it talks about people receiving the Holy Ghost, many times it said the Holy Ghost came upon them, or they received the Holy Ghost, or they were baptized with the Holy Ghost. These are inter, uh, interchangeable terms uh, of the same experience, decide, uh, describing that same experience. Furthermore, the Bible said, for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. It is by a spiritual baptism that we become a part of the uh, body of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, it says, without the Spirit of Christ, we're none of His. And so without the Spirit of God in us, and we're still carnal. And it is the same Spirit that raised up Jesus dwell in us, then we will also be raised up to be with Him. Thank you very much. You now have a three-minute, three-and-a-half-minute speech. Oh, did I do something wrong there? No. All right, let's address the issue of salvation by grace alone. We believe in salvation by grace alone. That simply states that God does all the work in our salvation, that without Him we cannot be saved. He provided the sacrifice of atonement in Jesus Christ. He is the one that turns our hearts to Him in repentance. He is the one who washes our sins away. He is the one who fills us with His Spirit. We can never earn, deserve, merit, buy, pay for our salvation. However, that does not mean the whole world is automatically saved, even though Jesus Christ died for the whole world. A person still must receive what God has offered and provided. A person must apply the grace to his life. He must express his faith. Now, the idea that faith and obedience are two different things, and that to say that obedience is necessary to salvation would be a denial of Scripture is, is totally false, because Hebrews 5 9 says that Jesus provides salvation to those who obey Him. 2 Thessalonians 1.8 says that Jesus is coming to judge all those who do not obey the gospel. 1 Peter 4.17 says that if we do not obey the gospel, we cannot be saved. Romans 10.16 says that those who obey the gospel are equivalent to those who believe the gospel, or those who do not obey the gospel do not truly believe the gospel. And so we see obedience as the faith response to God. For example, if repentance is something outside of salvation, uh, then what about Jesus' statement in Luke 13, that except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. In other words, repentance is a response of faith to the hearing of the Word of God. And to say that someone is somehow saved by faith without repentance is a contradiction of Scripture. The way that someone expresses their faith in God and His Word is by obeying His Word, repenting of their sins. And so all we are saying here is that baptism is part of the faith response to God. Receiving the Holy Spirit is what happens when a person repents of their sins and opens their heart to God in faith. They're filled with the Spirit. We do not make such statements to say that all of Christianity is uh, lost or going to hell or things like that. We simply make this statement that we are to, are to obey the Word of God. This is what the Word of God teaches. We are to obey. Each individual will be judged by God. He will decide if we truly have faith. He will decide if we're truly obedient. But we cannot deviate one iota from the commands of Scripture. And just as when the people ask, 
on the day of Pentecost what they needed to do to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, to make Him the Lord of their life, to be forgiven of their sin of crucifying Him. And Peter said, repent, be baptized, and receive the Holy Spirit. And we believe that the same thing is applicable today. Now, as far as the idea that baptism has no relation to the remission of sins, no major translation uh, that that or why I'm aware of or anybody can give to me will show that repent, remission of sins is not tied into baptism. It's clearly stated. In fact, uh, for the remission of sins, King James Version, baptized for the remission of sins. The New International Version, be baptized so that your sins may be forgiven. Then you've got Acts 22, 16. Why tarest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So we believe that repentance and baptism together is our response to God, and God uh, washes away our sins at that time. Thank you very much, Reverend Bernard, for the historic Christian uh, rebuttal. Well, yes, in John 6, when people came to Jesus and said, what must we do to work the works of God? He said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The obedience to the gospel, when we speak of obeying the gospel, is to believe in Jesus Christ alone. Baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, the business that has to be immersion in the name of Jesus, and also the uh, evidence of speaking in tongues, they are never found in gospel preaching passages. And when we refer to John uh, Acts 2, and we point out that the person and number of the Greek text reveals that there's a grammatical connection between repenting and having your sins remitted, and the baptism does not belong in that. It's a paraphrase. That's a matter of Greek grammar. The same thing with the other passage you, you mentioned. Uh, as you look at the original, and any commentator will point this out, uh, when Ananias said to arise, uh, the, the, as Paul called upon the name of the Lord, his sins would be forgiven. It's not the washing that leads to the removal of the sin, but the calling upon the name of the Lord that removes the sin. That's just a point of Greek grammar. Thus it is salvation by the grace of God alone, apart from such human efforts as baptism, either water or spirit, speaking in tongues or things of that nature. Thank you very much, Dr. Morey. Ed, you have three and a half minutes now to keep going. Okay, um, again in the uh, track here, the Apostles' Doctrine by Hanby. Uh, Hanby specifically says, without proper baptism, it is impossible to enter into the kingdom of, of God. And this is exactly what uh, we do not believe that the Scripture says. Now, Dave, you mentioned and pointed out that, um, that, uh, that out of obedience, okay, I wholeheartedly agree with this obedience, this, this, this response. But you see, I have a problem... Uh, with the idea that salvation becomes contingent upon the availability of water. Uh, an individual walking along and calling upon the Lord, um, uh, you know, believing and saying, Lord Jesus, uh, I want, I, I'm a sinner, I'm lost, I want you to come in, you know, come in and save me. Pretty much like Cornelius did. We'll see Cornelius, according to the, um, the idea that you have to, it's impossible to be saved without water, goes against that. You need, the, you need the availability of water. Then not only do you need the availability of water, but you need the availability of somebody to put you down under the water. So now, not only do we need the gospel, we need the availability of water, and we need somebody to put us into the water. Where the scripture says that he that believes, he that will cling to, will trust in and cling to Jesus Christ, is the one. He passes from death unto life. And as, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that out of obedience, 
out of a statement that our sins have been forgiven because we have called upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we then go into the, water of bapt uh, the waters of baptism as a statement of faith, okay, that our, our sins have been forgiven and that we have indeed passed from sin unto life. The scriptures abound with, with, with many scriptures. Okay, for example, John chapter 3, verses um, 15, 16, 18, and 36 says, He that believes in the name of the Son of God is, is, is saved. It talks about in John chapter 5, verse 24, again, he that believes, the emphasis on is the one that believe, uh, believes. We have in John chapter uh, 6, verse 47, uh, another example of believing. In John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 10 through 13, it says that, uh, that if, you, if, you believe, if you have the Son, you have life. He that does not have the Son does not have life. These things are written that you might believe, and believing, by believing, you might have life through his name. So we see the, the emphasis for salvation resting on the one who believes, the one who reaches out and uh, by faith takes Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior. There's not a scripture in the Bible that says that the condemnation falls on the unbaptized. But we do have scriptures that say that the condemnation will fall on the unbeliever. Those who do not believe because Christ has come in, light has come into the world, and men have loved darkness rather than the light. Those who reject the light, those who reject him, the condemnation falls on him. So the unbeliever is the recipient of the condemnation of God, not the unbaptized. We, we totally believe, Dave, that you have salvation and baptism linked together. We're not denying that remission of sin and salvation do not play a part, but they do not play a part in our salvation. If it did, then the bottom line becomes, my salvation becomes contingent upon the availability of water and somebody to place me in that water, where the clear teaching of the scripture says, he that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, and that watery ba water baptism follows that as a statement that that sin has been remitted. One other thing I can push in is that from Acts 19, those who were baptized under the Apostle John had to be rebaptized, so the salvation evidently didn't save them. Okay, thank you. You were still within your time limit. They could do that. Okay, you now have a final one and a half minute rebuttal time period. Maybe we can divide that up a little. Well, I would like to respond in this way uh, concerning uh, the salvation that you have mentioned to us here. We do believe that no one is saved simply by being baptized. That first of all, he has to have faith. And we also believe that he needs to repent of his sins. He needs to turn to God away from a, an evil and a sinful lifestyle. And in response to that, that same faith that causes him to repent will also cause him to be baptized. Now, it seems strange to me that when Jesus is talking to his disciples and the uh, John, the 20th chapter, and the 23rd verse. He said to them, Whosoever sins you remit, they shall be remitted. And whosoever sins you retain, they shall be retained. No, one can, no man can forgive sins. Only God can do that. If I had been there, I would have probably been confused if I did not realize that there was a way that I could remit someone else's sins. And that tells me that Acts 2.30 gives me that answer. That remission, And also in Luke says, Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Okay, you gentlemen also have a final one-minute statement. All right. I think it's interesting to note, since we have heard the term used, historic Christianity, orthodox Christianity, it's very interesting to see the position of these gentlemen that baptism is not 
part of salvation, that it's not for remission of sins, contradicts the overwhelming majority of, of traditional Christianity. I just throw that in for observation, although, of course, we're discussing the Bible as normative. But the first five centuries, the, the authors of the first five centuries, the creeds such as the Nicene Creed, Martin Luther himself, the Lutheran Catechism, the Augsburg Confession, so the historic Protestant and Christian uh, Catholic uh, traditions would agree with the position that we're presenting here as far as the role of baptism. As far as the availability of water in a preacher, well, Romans 10 says that without a preacher, how can a person be saved? We must hear the gospel and we must respond to the gospel, but it's the individual's faith that causes them to respond to the gospel. God can deal with any hypothetical situations where uh, water is not available, but we're dealing with what the scripture commands. Last final comments from the historic Christian position. The reason that the United Pentecostal Church is listed as a cult by various anti-cult uh, ministries, such as Walter Martin, etc., is that you do say that obedience is essential to salvation, water baptism, by immersion in the name of Jesus is essential, the baptism of the Holy Ghost is essential, and that speaking in tongues is the initial evidence of the reception of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that the Trinitarians and the Orthodox at this point depart from baptismal regeneration reveals our love and allegiance to scripture above tradition. Okay, we, uh, we have uh, exactly, uh, what, uh, three minutes left in the program, so I'm going to throw a question out here to historic Christianity. Do you believe that, that uh, water baptism is necessary, or is it a sin if we're, if we're not? Okay. All right, go ahead. Could you answer that, Dr. Mike? Water baptism is not essential to salvation, for the way of salvation in every dispensation or age is always the same, which is by faith alone. For without faith it is impossible to please God. So the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, being chapter 4 or elsewhere, says that the way of salvation, which was justification by faith, was the way that Abraham was saved, so, so the way David was saved. Basically you're saying that you believe a person should be baptized if they know to be baptized, and it's a sin not to be baptized, but it's not essential for salvation. And your position is, it our, is essential. Our position is, we're commanded to be baptized. To refuse to be so would put you in question with God. But individual cases of some hypothetical nature, we would say God is the judge. It's not up to us. So we cannot make an official loophole and say, well, you can not be baptized and be right with God. We leave each individual case in the hands of God. But having said that, we would say that we are commanded to be baptized just as we're commanded to repent. That is part of the salvation experience, part of responding to the gospel. And the Orthodox respond that we're also commanded to love our wives, uh, raise our children, give our money and time. In other words, when we're talking about the Christian life, we're given an endless list of things we must obey for sanctification, not justification. So that when Scripture says that you must be baptized, you have to join the church, you need to be in fellowship with the saints, all of those things are viewed as the outgrowth of salvation, not as the act or basis of salvation. So that we're saved by grace, and as a result, then we go and obey God in all of life. Okay, we will continue this discussion with our uh, program again next week. Well, for the last three weeks, we've dealt with the subjects of the nature of God and also salvation and baptism. So today, we're continuing in that 
format with program four, and again today we'll be discussing salvation, water baptism, and what role water baptism indeed plays in salvation. So today we're going to open it up with the United Pentecostal Church and their opening statement for today's program concerning salvation and water baptism. Well, we're going to talk specifically about water baptism right now, and we want to establish that we obtain our doctrine of water baptism from the scriptures. We do not look to historical figures or creeds as a norm or as a definitive statement of doctrine, but only to the Bible. When we study the Bible, we find that baptism is for people who believe in Christ and have repented of their sins. It's to be administered by immersion in water for the remission of sins, and it's in the name of Jesus Christ. And we find five accounts in the New Testament church where a name or a formula is mentioned in connection with water baptism, in each of those five accounts, it's the name of Jesus that is so identified. Therefore, when we baptize someone, we actually invoke the name of Jesus over the baptismal candidate, because that is the example of the New Testament church and supported by the witness of the epistles. Okay, so then water baptism is necessary, correct? All right, opening statement. The position that we take is that <clears throat> water baptism is also necessary, but not necessary for salvation. We believe that uh, salvation uh, is, the, is the result of trusting in, clinging to, and relying upon Jesus Christ. What follows from that, after the sinner has had his sins remitted, what follows from that is water baptism. We also believe that water baptism is in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but we also recognize that the book of Acts also says that the wa water baptism was uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. We see no conflict at all in that regard. So we see that uh, water baptism plays a part uh, in, uh, in salvation, but it does not, does, does not mean that a person who does, is not baptized is not saved. It just simply means that a person who is not baptized needs to have instructions as to what the significance of trusting in Jesus is and then to, bapti to be baptized as a result of the command that Jesus gave. Okay, so your position basically, it's, it's necessary to be baptized, but not necessary for salvation. Exactly. All right. Opening speech. Very good. I would like to talk about baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. First of all, I think we recognize that in the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, that in every account in that book of Acts where the formula is given, it is always given in the name of Jesus Christ. This is true as on the first day of the church when Peter preached to them Jesus Christ and they asked, Men and brethren, what shall we do? He responded by saying, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And then it is also true that when he went, when Philip went to Samaria and preached Christ to them, when they believed, the scripture said they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. The same is true when he went to the household of Cornelius, Gentiles, and when they received the Holy Spirit, he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord or our Jesus. We also find that in the 19th chapter of Acts, when the Apostle Paul met disciples of John the Baptist, who had been baptized by John, but had not been baptized in Christian baptism, then he baptized them, he rebaptized them, this time in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 19 and 5. We also find that Paul's baptism, as recorded in Acts 9, is also given to us in a testimony in Acts 22. And here he said that, And I told him, Why tearest thou? Arise and be baptized, call, uh, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. 
in every one of these five cases uh, of the nine uh, records of, uh, of baptism in the New Testament, we find that they baptize in the name of Jesus Christ. Also, furthermore than that, uh, the Corinthian church and this baptism, we find Paul explaining that in 1 Corinthians when he said, I did not baptize anyone in my name, but uh, I preached Christ and implying that it was in the name of Christ that he, uh, was, uh, that he baptized. That was the name that he did. Also, uh, we find that on the other two, uh, two uh, of, the, of the incidents in which uh, it does not say the formula, Acts, the ninth, uh, eighth chapter, and the 37th and 8th verses, when he baptized the, Philistia, the Ethiopian eunuch, that he did it upon a profession of faith. He said, how, he said, uh, can any man forbid water, can, can, you, uh, can you not baptize me? Here's water. What hindered me to be baptized? And Philip said to him, do you believe? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, it was upon that profession or that creed that he baptized him. The same thing is true in Acts, the 16th chapter, and the 31st verse, when he asked the question, what could I do to be saved? He said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and I shall be saved. He took him and baptized him that same night upon that basis. It was not, do you believe the Trinity, but do you believe in Jesus Christ, and they baptized in that name. In, in Matthew 28:19, the singular name is given here. Since we believe that Jesus Christ was God manifested among us and in flesh, then we believe that, that, that as God, he was also Father. And we have no problem dealing with uh, him being the uh, Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. Time is up. Uh, gentlemen, the Christian perspective on that, the response, the rebuttal? Again, we see, uh, okay, going back to the Ethiopian eunuch, okay, um, uh, about him uh, hearing the gospel and he believed it and he said what can hinder me from being uh, uh, what hinders me from uh, being baptized again is at that point it was a point of believing it was, the, it was at the point where he recognized that Jesus was the savior of Israel and he put his trust his confidence that he passed from death unto life it was at that point that he says that uh, the statement that I will make now for the remission of my sins is this water baptism we also see um, the idea uh, in, in scripture between what the United Pentecostal Church says is that you have a, a, a differentiation between Acts chapter or Matthew 28, 19 and the um, Acts 2, 38, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 19, 19, 5, 10, 48, and uh, so on. And uh, we see no conflict in that. And uh, we see that that's, there's a par perfect uh, harmony in that. And we see the harmony coming at uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 7, where it declares by what name or what power or authority have you done. So we see name and authority linked together in the baptism. So a person who is baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can in fact say that he is baptized in the authority or the name of Jesus. Okay, you now have a three and a half minute uh, opening speech. Uh, the orthodox view of salvation is based not upon a few uh, scattered texts in the book of Acts, but particularly what is taught in the epistles, namely particularly in the book of Romans, which is the passage aforementioned. Here we find that the apostle Paul is arguing that salvation, the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, is what saved Abraham before the giving of the law, and it's what saved David after the giving of the law. Thus, the way of salvation, according to the book of Romans, and then it's repeated in the book of Hebrews, has always been only one way, which is the way of faith, apart from the works of the law. 
If salvation were essential to salvation, then it would have to have been essential in the Old Testament, or circumcision would have to be essential to salvation in the Old Testament, and that would immediately exclude every woman from being saved. Now, when we come to the subject of what formula do you use to baptize somebody in, I'd like to offer a $500 reward if anyone can show in the New Testament where anyone was baptized using the words, quote, I now baptize you in the name of Jesus, or I now baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What you do find in the book of Acts is that no formulas were used. The Trinitarian formula is not quoted, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Neither do I find a single instance of the Jesus-only formula used. What you find is the term, they were baptized in the name of Jesus, and then another time it says, in the name of the Lord Jesus, another time it'll say the Lord Jesus Christ. Since there's no consistency in the terminology, there is no formula. You do not find it in quotation. What you do find is the phrase, in the name of, and as Dr. A.T. Robertson points out in his commentary on the book of Acts, it means by the authority of, as in Matthew 10:41, by the authority of the name of the prophet. So if I came and said, open up in the name of the law, it means not the word law, but it means by the authority of. Thus we find that in, for example, in the teaching of the Twelve, one of the earliest Christian writings, on one side of the page it says they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Then you turn to the other side and you find out they were baptized. Now it's in quotation referring to the formula uh, with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that the early Christians recognized that when someone was baptized, they were baptized by the authority of Jesus Christ. And Matthew 28:19 is where we find out how to baptize them. For we are told in terms of the ellipsis of the Greek construction there, baptize them in the name of the Father, and in the name of the Son, and in the name of the Holy Ghost. The word name not being repeated because it's not necessary when you have an ellipsis construction in the Greek. And taking Granville Sharp's rule number six, which says that when you have a series of nouns, and this in this case has to do with proper nouns, connected with the word chi, with each of the proper nouns having a definite article in front of it, it must refer to three separate persons. This is just a matter of Greek grammar. Okay, rebuttal time for the United Pentecostal right. believers. I would like to respond to the authority that you brought up about the name being the authority. First of all, the only way that you can evoke the authority is by using the name. For example, if I would give you a check uh, to draw from my checking account at a bank, then the only way that you would have authority to pull that out of the bank is my signature on the line. When it said, in the name of Jesus Christ, the only way that you can evoke the authority of God's salvation to us and God's blessings to us is to use that name. The name is singular in Matthew 28, 19. It is singular there and given to us later by those who first knew what it meant, and that is the apostles much earlier than any document that is not inspired that might have come after the apostles' days. The early church was consistent. More than that, they were consistent throughout the epistles. It is always baptized into Christ. Or perhaps uh, as many, uh, we're buried with him in baptism. And so there was a consistency of saying, everywhere you talk about baptism, it is baptized into Christ, baptized into the name of Christ, 
are in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is that. You said there's no consistency. The name Jesus is the consistent one of all of the formulas, and that name is to be used. For that name alone is the name of God's salvation to us today. Okay, that's the end of the rebuttal time. Now you'll have a three-and-a-half-minute uh, speech. First of all, baptism is a new covenant experience. The Old Testament saints were saved just as we are in the sense that by the grace of God, through faith, as they express an obedience based on the atoning sacrifice of Christ. They were never given a command to be baptized. Therefore, it was not relevant in Old Testament times. They were given specific things. Uh, Hebrews 11 and 7 says that by faith, Noah was moved with fear, prepared an ark to the saving of his house, and thereby he became the heir of the righteousness, which is by faith. In other words, if he said, yes, Lord, I believe you, but I think you're just going to save me. I don't see any reason to uh, do what you say. Then he would have drowned. So his faith, his salvation, his faith was expressed in doing what God said to do. And that's all we're saying in 1 Peter 3, 21, using Noah as an example, says the like figure whereunto baptism doth now also save us. And we understand that it's through faith that it does, based in Jesus Christ. Now, let me deal a little bit more with the authority. We find that uh, Jesus not only, uh, the, the Bible not only talks about being baptized in Jesus' name, but Jesus told his disciples to pray in his name, to pray for the sick in his name, to cast out demons in his name. And when we go to Acts 3, where they actually prayed for someone, they said, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When you go to Acts 16, when they actually prayed for the demon to be cast out of someone, they said, in the name of Jesus. And so the way that we do it in his name and invoking his authority is to invoke his name. Now, you bring up the Greek text. Let me give you uh, what the Greek has to say regarding the name as used in the book of Acts. Uh, you'll immediately recognize the lexicon of Bauer, Arndt, and Gingrich, which is the published by the University of Chicago Press, the most well-known uh, authoritative source today. And it says about the various phrases of the Greek in Acts, when Acts 2.38, this means when someone's name is mentioned or called upon or mentioning someone's name. Acts 10.48, while calling on the name, while naming the name. In many passages, it seems to be a formula. Also, uh, he gives a translation, be baptized or have oneself baptized while naming the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, then going on to 1 Corinthians 6, 11, through or by the name, the effect brought about by the name is caused by the utterance of the name. So uh, the Greek text supports the name was actually invoked. Acts twenty two sixteen. The, the Greek verb there is very specific regarding the invocation. Let me just read you a number of translations. The interlinear, invoking the name of him. Uh, another translation, while invoking his name, with invocation of his name, by calling upon his name, and invoke his name, as you call upon his name, by calling upon his name, to call upon for oneself, to call upon by way of adoration, making use of the name of the Lord. These are various translations or comments on this Greek term. And so that's all we're saying is that when we baptize, we should baptize in Jesus' name. Now, regarding Matthew 28, 19, uh, Granville Sharp rule does not say that it has to be three persons. Anytime you see Kai connecting, it doesn't have to be persons. We recognize there are three designations, but nowhere does that rule demand that those designations have to be persons in the Trinitarian sense. Rather, we see it's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The Father has manifested us in Jesus' name. We receive the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name, John 5, 43, John 14, 26. So the name of Matthew 28, 19 is the name of Jesus. Okay, rebuttal time for historic Christian believers. <clears throat> Very good. And we, uh, 
Willis respond by saying that um, <clears throat> if the if the name of Jesus, if um, being baptized in Jesus' name, uh, or the uh, or baptism in Jesus' name, uh, because it's in Jesus' name, has to be preceded by Jesus' name, then we have a, a almost a ridiculous thing here where it's, it talks about in, in Colossians chapter three verse seventeen, and it says that whosoever uh, in word or deed uh, do all in the name of Jesus uh, Christ. So if it says uh, if doing things in the name of Jesus Christ, okay, if you have to qualify for doing something in Jesus' name, if it has to be preceded by uh, invoking the name of Jesus, then it becomes ludicrous. When I get out of bed, I say, I'm now getting out of bed in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I am now putting on my shoes. In the name of Jesus, I am now walking out the door. In the name of Jesus. So we find no contradiction here between in the name of Jesus and the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is our position that the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not Jesus. You see, uh, UPC uh, believe and maintain that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all names of Jesus. We see the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as separate distinct entities and that we can be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the authority of Jesus and the coupler being Acts chapter 4, verse 7. Okay, we now have a three and a half minute uh, positional speech. As I've stated before that the doctrine of salvation, particularly in the New Testament, is that the way of salvation is the same in every age because it's the same God. Does it matter for under the old covenant, the new covenant, we're dealing with Jews, Gentiles, rich, poor, black, white, or whatever we are. There is only one way of salvation that is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a classic example of how there can be misunderstanding of uh, the relationship of baptism is in the passage, which has been quoted several times from, I believe, Acts 22:16. Uh, and when you notice what the Greek says, since we brought up the subject of Greek, I don't claim to be a Greek scholar, though I did have uh, a seven years of it. Uh, what you do find is that the word, uh, wash away your sins, has to be, is in the past and it's a past participle saying, having already washed away your sins, you're to arise and be baptized. The same thing with the verses about uh, uh, dealing with whose sins you've forgiven. Uh, once you remit them and release them, they will be. Actually, the Greek says you're to forgive those sins which have already been forgiven. So you're to pronounce forgiveness on those who have been forgiven. When you look in the New Testament, you do not find that baptism is that particular thing that marks the difference between the saved and the lost. It's faith that makes the difference between the saved and the lost. It's faith in God and into the Lord Jesus that brings about true conversion. Now, some of the proofs that baptism does not save, uh, you brought up, for example, uh, Mr. Hall, uh, the baptism in John 3. Since Christian baptism did not exist at that time, there was only John's baptism. Jesus himself never baptized anybody. And if baptism saved, it's interesting he failed to ever save anybody by baptism. Uh, and the baptism given in John uh, is not speaking of water baptism there, but it's speaking of something else because there was no Christian baptism. Then when we turn to Acts 19, which you've also referred to, these people were baptized with John's baptism, which was unto repentance, and phrases were used about the remittance of sin, but evidently that did not save them either. So Jesus did not baptize. Paul himself says, I don't even remember who I baptized. And it's the preaching of the gospel that is the important thing. 
Thus, as we go through the New Testament, we find that baptism is not essential to salvation. And then secondly, again, I would state that the phrase, in the name of Jesus or the Lord Jesus or in the name of the Lord, these cannot be viewed as baptismal formula. They're not even structured that way in any translation. Instead, it means by the authority of, and that authority would say, in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit, which would identify the three persons of the Trinity. Thus, baptism should not be done in the Jesus-only formula, but in the Trinitarian formula, and that we have on the basis of Scripture. Okay, you'll have your closing rebuttal. Regarding the role of baptism as part of salvation, we do not believe that baptism saves us. We understand that it's faith through which we're saved, but faith is disobedient. We cannot speak of a disobedient faith. The bottom line is this. Jesus said in Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Your position, as I understand it, would be to add a not to Jesus' words, namely, He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. All we're saying here is we're not willing to insert the not into the words of Jesus Christ. We're simply willing to tell everybody, believe and be baptized, you shall be saved. We're not willing to fall short of that anyway. Don't have time to go into all the Greek. I haven't had as much seminary training in Greek as you have. I do have an interlinear Greek, but the simple point that I'll make here without going into the aorist participle and all that is simply to say that no major translation interprets those verses the way you do. The direct translation is not re- that you propose is not required or even uh, given by the scholars as necessary or uh, the, the, the major one. No major translation does that, not even the literal translation that I have right here. So when, we, when it's all said and done, I've given you the examples where actually the name was invoked at baptism, and I've given you an example where the Greek prepositions actually mean the name was used, and all we're saying is we should follow the example of the New Testament church in using the name of Jesus, and that fulfills Matthew 28, 19. We should fulfill it like the apostles fulfilled it. Okay. Uh, We have a few minutes to have some dialogue here at the end. Uh, He brought up an interesting uh, point here. Uh, He that believes and is baptized uh, is saved. How would would you handle that? uh, Well, again, see, we have, there's absolutely no part. Uh, He that believes and is baptized is saved. But you see, the part that that the UPC that I have, that I depart from them is, it says, uh, we would say that he that believes, okay, uh, is saved absolutely saved, and the baptism follows that. So, of course, if a person's saved, he that believes and is baptized will result in salvation. But once you stop and you say, he that believes, and if he does not, is not baptized in the name of Jesus, okay, is not saved or does not constitute uh, biblical salvation, that's where it breaks down. So we see, again, that the, um, the condemnation falls on the unbeliever, not on the unbaptized. And that baptism, Christian baptism in water follows salvation as a statement that sins have already been remitted. Would, would the, the, the opposite of that, that he that, is, that, is, that believes not it is not baptized is not saved? Right. If, and the key of belief is there because even if someone is baptized... If it's not true belief, if they haven't repented, they're not saved. Baptism does not save them. The emphasis is correctly placed on belief. If you're not, if you don't believe, you won't be baptized. If by some stretch of the imagination you decide to be baptized without faith, it's still no good. The emphasis is on belief. But we're simply not willing to say that what Jesus should have said is, He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. We just want to stick to the words of Jesus, obey that. And then we, if we all just did that, uh, then we wouldn't have this problem of discussion. 
Well, to get technical, those aren't the words of Jesus. That last part of Mark 16 probably is not there, as you well know. Uh, but again, we would simply state that salvation, since it's salvation in the presence of the same God in Old and New Testaments, would always be the same. We don't have to dread the possibility of no availability of water, someone in the frozen, someone in a desert who can't be saved because they're waiting for some water. Uh, someone could pick up a track, listen to a radio. Faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of the Lord. And so they can be read, it can be over the radio, the TV, and salvation is when they call upon the name of the Lord. Gentlemen, this has gone on just about long enough. We have just a few seconds to close, but I'd like to thank you all for, for coming today.